0: If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. And we will uh, begin reading this morning in verse 14. And we'll read all the way down to verse 20. This passage is um, significant uh, in my life. I think it should be significant in all of our lives. This, this passage in the Gospel of Mark, this is the first moment where you actually hear the Savior speak. I mean, this is the first moment after all of this introduction, after the heavens themselves being torn open and the Father declaring, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, after John the Baptist declares that this this one who is to come is mightier than me, of whose sandals I am not worthy of untying. This one who is to come is the one who will baptize people in the very Spirit of God. Thus far, we've not heard this one say anything. We've only seen him be baptized. We've seen him go into the wilderness and for 40 days experience temptation and overcome the evil one, fulfilling all righteousness. But now in Mark chapter 1... Uh, Verse 14, he speaks. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the, si- along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning uh, pleading that you would help us to more than understand this passage that you would help us to apply this passage to our lives and that the original intention of Mark as he wrote this and your spirit as you inspired this would be accomplished in this place. As we read this, would we would we see an example? Would we hear a message to be believed, an example to be followed, Father? We pray, God, that you would... Use this moment in your word to convict where conviction needs to take place, to encourage where encouragement needs to take place, uh, to stir us to worship a God and a Christ who is greater than we even perceive, Father. May we leave this place with deeper affections for Jesus and a greater understanding of what he came to accomplish around us, in us, and through us, Father. We pray this moment would be a moment of worship in your word. For me personally and for us corporately. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, it's a strange transitional statement here in verse 14. In the opening paragraphs of the gospel, we are introduced uh, uh, first to the th- message of this book, the theme. This message, the message of this book is going to be about the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ. But in verse 2, we're introduced to a voice... Crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he's preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness. And he's urging people to symbolize their repentance and faith by this act of baptism. And this John the Baptist character is described as someone who is fulfilling the prophecies of the book of Isaiah the book of Malachi, he's the one, he's the forerunner who's proclaiming the Messiah is almost here, the Christ is almost here. This John the Baptist was the guy whom Jesus Christ went to and requested that John the Baptist baptize Jesus. Okay, so think about this. John the Baptist's hand was on the back of Jesus as he lowered Jesus into the water and raised Him out of the water. John the Baptist is the one holding the Son of God (laughs) as he pulls him out of the water and the heavens tear open and the Father declares, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says of John the Baptist, there is no one in the world greater than John the Baptist. And the reasoning being because John the Baptist lived by this code that he must increase and I must decrease. So you're introduced to this guy, this this. This one who is like Elijah the prophet. And then you move on to Jesus, the one whom he's pointing to, because John the Baptist is pointing beyond himself. And then, in just sort of a transitional phrase kind of way, in in like five words, you just have... Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist, voice in the wilderness, fulfiller of prophecy, uh, the new Elijah, John the Baptist was arrested, imprisoned, and the readers of this book would have known what happened to him. He was beheaded by King Herod. Arrested, imprisoned, beheaded for speaking on behalf of God and for serving God. John the Baptist experienced to the full what so many Christians were experiencing, especially in the city of Rome, where this letter would have first been written and read. We noted several weeks ago that the Gospel of Mark was written for the church suffering under the persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero. And this book is very much written uh, that they might be encouraged, that they might be encouraged to persevere, that they might be reminded that that Jesus prepared them for tribulation, that this is the way of Christ. They're not doing something wrong because they're experiencing hardship and suffering. This is the way of the Lord. So the first readers, they too were arrested for serving God and speaking for God. They too were desperate for the good news that Jesus was coming to proclaim. But what Jesus was proclaiming must have to them felt very distant and very different from what they were experiencing and what they expected. So I think Mark puts verse 14 and crafts verse 14 very purposefully. I think that that in verse 14, when he just says in passing, and John was arrested, this is a phrase of solidarity, this is a phrase of common experience. John the baptizer was arrested, not for his unfaithfulness, but for his faithfulness. And so in the very verse, verse 14 itself, it's doing two things. It's recognizing and acknowledging the way things are. And we live in a space and in a world and in a time where, where the, the government, the leaders, the rulers, the surrounding world will punish you for faithfulness, not unfaithfulness. Where faithfulness is difficult, not easy. But in the same sentence, so you've got, He was arrested, but then he introduces what Jesus came to accomplish. So you've got the way things are, and then the way things Jesus says he came to make them be. So look at the verse with me, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. We don't typically think in terms of kings and kingdoms. But if you were in hiding because the Roman king wanted you dead, you would have very much felt the goodness of the good news that there might be a new kingdom and a new king. This is truth number one this morning. Truth number one is this. The good news is an invitation to join a new kingdom. The, the whole story of the Bible could very much be told through the lens of the kingdom of God. And in fact, uh, I, Several years ago in our Advent series, we preached an entire sermon that basically traced the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation and show how this sort of holds the story together, if you will. At creation, God was king, undisputed, uncontested. His rule was perfectly obeyed by every creature, sun, moon, star, plant, bug, human being, Everything followed the rule of God, and his reign was fully enjoyed. It was a good thing for God to rule and reign. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was more than just a mistake. It was rebellion. The Bible does not describe their sin as like an Eve sort of just like tripped and fell as she found herself standing by the wrong tree. Satan Tempts her with this allurement that you will be like God. The sin, the first sin, and every sin following the first sin, including your sin and my sin, is the sin which attempts to establish a competing kingdom. It, it, it's, it's a sin that wants the throne. They suffered the consequences, and we have suffered the consequences every day ever since. We, every person in this room, we want the throne. We want to be in charge. We want to be the one who sets the rules. We want to be the one who is wise. We want to want, be the ones who get the glory. We want the throne, and so does all of humanity. When you have a lot of humans wanting the throne, then you have conflict. <laughs> Man's kingdom throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, is described as a miserable place. And I think that by experience we can testify to that. That man's kingdom produces war, poverty, abuse, neglect mistreatment, injustice, murder, adultery, betrayal, idolatry, pride, selfishness, anxiety, depression, loneliness, all the brokenness of the world. We could keep going. That is the product of man trying to sit on a throne over a world that he did not create and over lives that he did not bring into being, including his own. Man's kingdom is a miserable place to live. It is a place where people like John the Baptist are arrested, not for evil, but for good. And the message of the Bible, the message of the Old Testament in particular, is that God promises His people that He will reestablish His kingdom over all the people's of the earth, and that that there's coming a day where man's kingdom will be no more, and God's kingdom alone will stand. There's coming a day where man's kingdom and all of the consequences that follow that kingdom will be eradicated, and the one who will usher in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all of the Old Testament promises that there's coming a guy who will serve as king, Listen to some samplings of the Old Testament promises. Now, this is what the Jewish people would have grown up hearing about. When life was hard, when, when the taxes were ridiculous, when, when, when they were being taken advantage of by the Roman Empire in many ways and made fun of, when racism was very real for them, the, the parents would encourage the children with the words of the Old Testament pointing to a new kingdom that one day they'd get to enjoy. They would have been longing and waiting for whoever that king was going to be. When was he going to get there? What was it going to be like? What was he going to do? So they would have heard texts like this, Exodus 15, 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Isaiah 9, 6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Take heart. Zechariah 14, 9, The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name. One. This is the message that they would have grown up hearing and clinging to. That man's kingdom is not all that there is. But God's kingdom is coming. And now in Jesus' first recorded words in the Gospel of Mark, we have an announcement. The time is is fulfilled, verse 15. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, meaning meaning the things that God has promised have come to be. The kingdom of God is at hand. That Greek word is an interesting word because at hand, it's not talking about time. It's talking about space. So, So the difference of me saying like, um, summer is near versus me saying like, Terry is near to me, right? This is spatial. Summer is, is time. This word is spatial. This Greek word is spatial. So what does it mean it's that the kingdom of God is at hand? Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God is here because I'm here. <laughs> because the king is here. Jesus is the king. I like how one commentator put it. He says, In Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. Because Jesus is king, the kingdom is here. And and his kingdom is extended through the people and in the people who submit to him as king. The new ruler. So then the question in this summary statement, this is the good news. The kingdom of God is here. The, the, The question then becomes, okay, how do I transfer my citizenship? Right? <laughs> I mean, how, how do I get in on the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man? I want to transfer my citizenship. What steps are there to take? What office do I stop by at to get the, the passport? And Jesus summarizes it with absolute stunning brevity and clarity. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Jesus rearticulates what John had already been proclaiming. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, those are really Christian words. Repent and believe. What do they mean? When we throw, you throw them around, the Bible throws them around. What If this is how Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is going to summarize, this is how you transfer your citizenship, we should be really clear on what these two words mean. Repent and believe. And I think that in the context of kingdom, it very much means turn from your pursuit of the throne over your own life and trust a new king truth number 2 the good news is an invitation to follow a new king the good news is an invitation to follow a new king so so this is this is basic christianity this is what it means to be a christian you become a christian when you when you Turn away from yourself on the throne and you put Jesus there. You you trust Him to lead your life, to save your soul, to offer you forgiveness. We we, we trust Him now to rule and reign over our lives and we look forward to the day where He extends His rule and reign fully and finally over every square inch of man's wretched kingdom. We repent and we believe in the good news. Faith and repentance, they're simple concepts, but they're not necessarily easy concepts, (laughs) It's simple to to say, stop trusting yourself, take yourself off the throne and put Jesus there. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. It can often feel abstract, like how do we discern what this actually looks like in someone's life? What does faith and repentance look like for a human being? And I think what Mark does here is he, he intentionally transitions from this summary of the Christian message in verse 15 to this story in verses 16 through 20 about Jesus calling the first disciples. Okay, so you've got verse 15, which is the summary of, this is the Christian message. There's a new king in town, repent and believe, right? Verse 16 immediately transitions to Jesus then walking up to his first followers and having a conversation and them starting to follow Jesus. So so if you want to figure out how to apply verse 15 then you get to watch the story unfold of verses 16 through 20. So let me read verse 16 through 20 again, but read it with the question on your mind that verse 15 should have provoked. What does faith and repentance look like? Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Now even verses 15, through, verses 15 to 16, it's somewhat of a strange sort of unexpected flow of the story. I mean, let's say you're reading this for the first time. Thus far, Jesus has been announced as the one with the power to immerse people in the very Spirit of God. The literal heavens tore open at his baptism to declare who he was. He's driven into the wilderness where he overcomes Satan himself. He now begins to preach, the kingdom of God is here. And you would almost expect him to start like gathering the troops now, right? I mean, you kind of expect him, it's like, all right, strap up, get your swords, get your spears, get your shields. We're taking it to Rome, we're taking it to man's kingdom. Let's. do this but his next step actually his first ministry step is somewhat underwhelming he takes a stroll by the sea of galilee and he spots a couple of guys just trying to make ends meet fishing and he simply calls them to himself One commentator says, The first recorded act of Jesus' ministry in Mark is not something sensational, a spectacular miracle, or a mighty sermon, but a simple summons of four common laborers into fellowship with himself. Jesus approaches Simon, Andrew, John, and James. And he just says, Follow me. The act itself even... Is countercultural. In those days, uh, it wasn't uncommon for a religious teacher to have a group of disciples. A group of people that followed the teacher around that they might learn from him so that then they could be, become a teacher one day. Rabbis would do this all the time. But standard procedure was that if you were aspiring to be a religious teacher, then you had to prove yourself worthy by your knowledge of the Torah, by your holiness. And you would have to get yourself in close with the teacher so, and prove to him by either by way of examination or example. You would have to work your way into his good grace and you would have to request that the rabbi teach you that he would be willing to let you follow him that would have been standard procedure the rabbi no way would a religious teacher stoop down and like request more students I mean that looks like you're you're desperate right I mean no they should come after you but on this occasion the rabbi the teacher goes out to the least likely of places to where the guys are cleaning up sloppy fish and he approaches them He chose them. Jesus pursues them. And He calls them not to a degree, not to a study plan, but Jesus calls them to Himself. No more steps to complete, no examination to prove your worthiness, no level of holiness or sanctification to be reached, just a command to be obeyed, and about as simple as it gets, follow me. Follow me, I think, is just another way of saying repent and believe. I mean, it, it, it's synonymous. Repent to repent is to turn, and to believe or to trust something else. As Jesus approaches these men, and he says the same thing that he already said earlier repent and believe, but this time he just says it in a different way follow me. Don't follow yourself, don't follow somebody else. Turn and believe that I'm worth following, and follow. Me, step off of the throne of your life and put me in that place. And that's exactly what they do. Mark chapter 1, verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20. And immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. Probably mad as a hornet. We got work to do. And they followed Jesus. Jesus. The text sort of, it sort of shocks you with how quickly and decisively each man leaves behind everything to obey Jesus' words. Just, it's almost as if Jesus' words themselves had the power to accomplish what he was commanding. It's almost when he said, follow me, the same way that he said, let there be light. There was nothing else going to happen in that moment but light be made. And there was nothing going to happen in that moment except we need to follow that guy. (laughs) I think though that when we read this story, sometimes our familiarity with the Bible can rob the Bible of its power, of its strikingness. Sometimes we're so familiar with a passage that we don't pause to think about how these were real individuals, real people in real history with real family businesses, really fighting to survive in a difficult context. I mean, these were Jewish people who'd grown up hearing the promises of a coming Messiah, a coming king, a coming day, with the kingdom of God to be ushered into the world. And here's a guy saying, I'm it. And these guys are being confronted with, is he worth the risk? I mean, is he worth the potential cost of following this Jesus of Nazareth? and i'm afraid that many of you if you're honest you would have pulled little james and john aside and you would have discouraged them from making such a foolish decision i'm afraid that many of you if you're honest you would have discouraged these four men from following jesus I'm afraid of many of you, if you're honest, if these four men were, were your sons or your grandsons or your brothers, you would pull them aside and you would say things like, Well, don't you think Jesus would want you to be wise? Don't you think Jesus would want you to be wise about this? Isn't it a little foolish just to drop everything? I mean, I mean, can't you serve God and be a part of the kingdom and still live in this place and and be close to your family and have a nice job and make decent money? I mean, wouldn't Jesus want you to care for your father Zebedee and your extended family? He set this business up for you to carry. He he, he very much needs you. Don't you think Jesus cares about those things? I'm afraid that this is the way that so many of us think, that, that many of us would have tried to talk the disciples out of following Jesus in the name of wisdom. In fact, I wonder how many of you uh, would have tried to talk me out of moving to New Orleans as a 21 year old if you were my parents or friends. In fact i remember some conversations with some some sitting in this room that at least moderately discouraged me from becoming the pastor of saint rose community church because of the risk there's no promises there's no promise of stability or a paycheck or that the church would do anything at all <laughs> See, I'm afraid that for so many of us, Jesus has become a trusty sidekick to help us do all the things we would have done anyways. Just to help us along to carry out the plan that we've already written for ourselves or other people have written for us. But see, that's a unique option for us in 21st century American context. They, th- these brothers did not have that option. The first century readers of the Gospel of Mark did not have that option and many people in the world today don't have that option like James and John and Andrew and Simon the people reading this book in hiding from the persecution power of the Roman Emperor Nero they had to make a choice it is either follow King Jesus foolishly and sacrifice everything else or continue business as usual and save yourself a lot of heartache I think Mark intends for his readers to see this passage as a testimony to what it really means to be a Christian. To live a life in such a way where literally everything is surrendered to the authority and the leadership of King Jesus. Because we believe that there is a kingdom that is eternal and it's eternally worth it. Therefore, we we offer... To Christ. Where we work, where we live, what we own, who we marry, who we spend time with, even our own families, they're all at the discretion, the disposal of King Jesus. We have to stop assuming that the agenda of Jesus Christ in our lives is the one that makes the most sense through the lens of the world. He sits on the throne of our lives, and his ways are often not our ways. <laughs> I did, so I I I want to challenge you just the way that I was challenged. This week, And and just because there was a moment in your life in the past where you've offered everything to Him and said, I'll go and do whatever you you say, it doesn't mean that even right now that you're living in that way. I mean, just because you made some big decision in the past doesn't mean like right now that that you're living in the spirit of this same type of surrender. I mean, when's the last time you put everything on the table before God? Your occupation, your finances, your home, your time, your relationships, your season in life. When's the last time you prayed and meant the words, Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in my life this is the way of the kingdom we live lives that are not our own we follow the king and and in the process of the following king jesus actually works on us he actually molds us and and shapes us. It's in the following. It's in the journey that that we become who He's always intended us to be. He he includes us, not just in fellowship with Him, but Jesus begins to incorporate us in the kingdom-expanding work. He's got jobs for us to do. He's got tasks for us to do. He's got eternal global purpose to participate in. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men make you become the word is ongoing process the word is i'm about to take you through a process here that's going to make you something that you were not before truth number three is this king jesus assigns to us a new vocation now new vocation i don't just mean everybody here needs to quit their job tomorrow and, and try to go find a different kind of job. I mean that your whole life now, everything in it, including your job, has a new purpose, a new direction, a new task, a new vocation, that even your jobs are not ultimate in of themselves. You have them for fulfilling this job. If you follow Jesus, Jesus says, you will become a person, you'll be made into a person who fishes for men. Okay, he's using the analogy of their job. <laughs> he's just using an analogy, all right? You will become the type of person who follows Jesus and then helps other people follow Jesus. So in one moment, the most important thing in the week for these guys is catching the slimy fish and delivering them to market in, in hopes of getting a good payday and not being spotted by one of the Roman officials who will make you pay more taxes than you really need to pay on that fish. I mean, that's your, that's your biggest worldview problem, is tax fraud, <laughs> being taken advantage of, and having to give away a couple more fish than you wanted to. And Jesus says, I'm going to take you from that... And I'm going to expand your whole reason for existence. And now the more important thing in the universe is that other people come to follow me as well. Jesus aims to save, to call, to transform people through the people he saved, called, and transformed. He, he walks with these men for three years, he, 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 he eats with them, and he fellowships with them, and he teaches them, and he lets them watch him, and, and, and it's all for the purpose that they would do the exact same thing, from generation to generation to generation, from country to country, from country, from community to community to community, uh, uh, to where it would get all the way 6,000 miles away to, to little St. Rose, Louisiana in the, the 21st century, that people would, would ongoingly until the end, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching and observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. I think you've heard that before somewhere. So this becomes the new vocation of the Christian. We sacrifice to see others saved. And the, the Christians in Rome, reading this book for the first time, it's not like that was new news to them. They were not suffering persecution because they kept Christianity to themselves and blended in with the Roman culture. If they would have done that, they would have been fine. They were suffering because how effectively (laughs) they had been spreading the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus throughout an empire that didn't want any of that. John the Baptist was not arrested for blending in with the rest of society. He was arrested for proclaiming the kingdom of God in such a way that it confronted the kingdom of man. And I wonder, I mean, if America went into a transition, if we became a place where persecution of Christians became a reality, like so many places in the world is, would you be a target of persecution? Would you be on anyone's radar? Or is your Christian life so unproductive, doesn't make any ways in anyone's life, so much so that the persecution would really not affect you very much other than maybe you couldn't go and sit in this room, in these chairs once a week. Or does your life, rather than blending in with the co-workers and the neighbors and the family, is your, would your life be a threat? I'll just be honest with you this morning. If our country... Comes under persecution if Christianity is no longer welcome in this place, I want to be most wanted. I want my Christianity to be a stinking threat. I want want people to be worried because the kingdom of God seems to keep expanding in the places where he lives, in the places where he goes and eats. At the same gas station he gets gas from. Christians just keep popping up wherever this guy goes. I want, I want to be on their radar if that happens in my lifetime. I know this seems weighty and big and beyond us. If you're here for Secret Church on Friday night, it's just hard to even fathom or compute the story of Ruth in the Middle East who gave her life to Christ and was disowned by her family and beaten by her husband Consistently to the point where she disappeared for days until she finally won her husband to Christ. That Christianity is so far away from our thinking that we think there's no stinking way I could give up that. There's no way that I could endure that. There's no way that I could do that. Well, let me just encourage you with these words. When Jesus came to these disciples and followed me, they didn't think they could do that either. The, the, the command was just follow me. It was just, it was just follow after Jesus. And Jesus says, and then I will make you into something. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you into something that you were not before. Just, just follow me. I mean, you look at these group, this group of guys, there's nothing exceptional in any of these guys. There's nothing noteworthy about these guys. There's nothing that makes Peter any different than you or beyond you. Nothing about his background, nothing about his his intellect or his his zeal. This is just a dude whom Jesus chose and said, I'm going to make you into something. When Jesus said, I'll make you into fishers of men, I can imagine the disciples being like, okay, that's a little weird. I imagine Peter being like, Andrew, I don't know what the heck he just said, but we think he's the Messiah, so let's just roll with it. They didn't know what Jesus was doing through them. They just knew, I follow." This step and this step and this step and this step after King Jesus, and he said he'll make me into something else. So don't, don't freak out about, well, what will it cost me later in the future and, and what will that look like? The promise of the Great Commission is go there and make disciples, and then the promise is, and Jesus will be with you to the ends of the age. Amen. The going is not going alone, it's a going with someone. And so let me, just, let me just pause here in all of this talk about our lives and how we spend it and leading other people to follow Jesus. Let me just ask you this. When was the last time you led someone to faith in Jesus? Now, I know that's a messed up question because sometimes you're going to be faithful and nobody comes to faith in Jesus for years. So let me reword the question for a much easier question. When's the last time you told An unbeliever about Jesus who could save them from an eternity in hell. When's the last time you committed to someone else's spiritual growth beyond the six-week membership class? For three years, with the aim and the goal of that person, not only following Jesus, but leading other people to follow Jesus. See, we've been issued a great invitation to participate in something much bigger than ourselves. The good news is an invitation to join a new kingdom that lasts forever and to forsake the old one that will be burned up in the last day. The good news is an invitation to follow a new king because all the other kings stink, including you. The invitation is to a new vocation to participate in the spreading of the kingdom of God. This is what repentance and believes looks like. Follow Jesus and help other people follow Jesus. It's not complicated. But it's not easy. (laughs) So this is what I want to do. How do you even respond to this example? How do you respond to this at all? I I just want to close with um, four questions. Four questions. I just want want to sit on these for just a moment in closing. Question number one. What... Have you left behind to follow Jesus? Now, I just want you to take a moment and consider the things that you personally have repented of, turned away from, sacrificed, warred against in order to follow Jesus. Now some of these things are going to be very small. Others of them are going to be very substantial. Some of these things will have been very easy to turn away from. Other things will have been very hard to turn away from and still are hard to turn away from. Some of these things that you've turned away from in your past were destroying you. <laughs> you, you look back and you think, I'm thankful <laughs> that I repented from that. I'm thankful that that guy or that thing or this, this reality is no longer on the throne because it was just a destroying me. Praise God, that's not on the throne anymore. And Jesus is on the throne. And some of the other things are a little harder to let go of. They're not as evidently bad. So maybe it's a log cabin with a screened-in porch in the mountains. You're no longer living there because Christ wants you to live somewhere else. Neutral things, but things you've turned away from. And, I, I, and if you can't think of anything, if you can't think of anything, any way to answer this question, then you really need to reconsider whether you have repented and believed at all. I don't know how you can be a Christian and not have turned away from something in order to follow Christ. In fact, you can't be a born-again Christian and be following Jesus and not have left something behind. What have you left behind to follow Jesus? Now, 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 now question number two. What have you gained in following Jesus? I mean, this is true. These disciples, they... They, they let go of nets, they, they let go of reputations, they let go of, of a lot of comfortability. Uh, later, they would, every single one of them would give their lives in proclaiming Jesus. Um, but they also were walking towards something. <laughs> uh, Paul says, uh, I count all those things as rubbish, we read early in the service, for the sake of, of gain, of knowing Christ. So just take a second, what have you gained in this life, and what have you gained in the next by following Jesus. I mean, if you're a Christian, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Things that you gain right now, that you don't have to wait on, that that right now you have relationship with God. You have only peace, joy, love that God can give. You have the fellowship of the church, a whole family of people who loves you like Christ loved them. You have the presence of the Spirit, the ongoing hope of future glory, the confidence in a sovereign God that when everything seems so uncertain, you don't have to be in panic mode, the strength during suffering that only Christ can provide, the opportunity to see people go from spiritual death to spiritual life, the the joy of being a part of a church that that, uh, five and a half years ago, there were four people in this room, joining together in sadness because it seemed like God was not moving in community and, and you've got to be a part of seeing 100 I think 7 covenant members join together to sing behold our god in this community like like you're getting to experience god's work that will last on into eternity way after your 401k runs out <laughs> way after all the things you thought were important proved to be eternally unimportant What have you gained in following Jesus? According to Ephesians, uh, we bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Question number three. What is Jesus calling you to leave behind today? So perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning and you've never followed Jesus at all. So what does repentance and faith look like right now for you, right here, right now? What does what transitioning your, your membership, your, your, your citizenship look like right now? And some of you have been following Jesus for a very long time and you're comfortable and you're missing what, what God would have you do. What, what would it look like to repent and believe today? What in your life is creeping on the throne where Jesus alone deserves to sit? What is Jesus calling you to leave behind? I can't answer that question for you because for many of you, it's different things. But it's it, the things that you must reflect upon on a, on a regular basis. The whole Christian life is lived in this way. Here it is, Lord. <laughs> do every day. Here's the blank slate, the, everything on the table, the blank check, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as is, is heaven, in my heart, in my life, in my family, in my community, in my neighborhood, in my church, in the world. Do as you please, you're the king. Which leads us to our last question, question number four. How has Jesus called you to embrace a new vocation as a fisher of men? How has he called you to leverage Where you live, your season of life, the job God has blessed you with, your finances. How has He called you to leverage these things? To make disciples of Jesus. I I would encourage you if you're a Christian just right now, just to write down the name of one person. One person. Whom God is calling you to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That person may be a husband or friend or a neighbor, a co-worker, or even a child. What have you left behind to follow Jesus? What have you gained by following Jesus? What is Jesus calling you to leave behind? How has Jesus called you to embrace a new vocation as fishers of men? I want to close just in prayer. I know this is like, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a hard sermon, right? I mean, it's a hard text, because it's like two things are happening here. It's like, there's just one aspect of like, man, I'm, I'm like convicted right now. Like, I, I haven't thought this way in a while. I haven't, I haven't really just open-handedly told the Lord, I'll go and do whatever He please, and spend my money on whatever He pleases. I, I haven't done this. So there's like this conviction element to it, which is good and right, and the Holy Spirit does that. But then there's like another side of the sermon, which is also like, There should be like some sort of excitement in this, right? Because repentance is always in two directions. There's the turning away from the thing, but then there's the turning toward the thing. So there's this sort of thing like, if God could take fishermen, uneducated common men, as Acts 4 describes them, and, and start the biggest church planting movement in the history of the world through these guys, and what might God use me for in this world? Like, what could I participate in that, that would make an eternal difference? Like, so, so you should be feeling both of these things in a struggle. <laughs> Conviction and sorrow over the things you're turning away from and excitement to the things you're turning potentially toward. And we walk in that every single day and every single morning when we spend time with the Lord. <laughs> so let's pray and let's respond. Father, you are good to give us this text and this example from your word, to give us a church where we don't have to do this alone, but we do this with the Spirit of God in us and in the people around us. You are good to invite us as instruments in your sovereign hand to do amazing things, and we pray. Father, may our Christian lives expand the kingdom of God in such a way that it would be a threat to the kingdom of man. We pray, raise us up, make us whom Jesus promised to make us, fishers of men, create us, mold us, shape us to be different than what we were at first. So we ask that you do these miracles even in this time of response where we direct our eyes to Christ and to following Christ in Jesus' name. Amen.